0: There are certain heartbreaks in the faith that cut deep, but I don't know what it is. Often, out of many of the heartbreaks and the heartaches that we experience in our life as believers, as Christians, there's none that I think cuts deeper than the one of unanswered prayer, unanswered prayer, that place where we get to when you have been contending, you've been asking, you've been praying, you've been interceding to no avail. And it's difficult, right? Because we come to church, we come to service, and the thing that we often hear most is that our God is a loving God. Our God is someone who inclines His ear towards us. Our God is someone who listens to the pleas of the weary. Our God is someone whose eyes go to and fro across the earth, looking towards those whom He loves. And yet, every day, every prayer, every second that goes by, or there's something on your hearts, be it a family member who's in need and you've been praying for their salvation. It might be something in the workplace, it might be something personal, it might be in the realm of relationships. But unanswered prayers often the one thing that brings much conflict in the hearts of the believer because it raises questions God, are you really that loving? God, I I thought that's who you said you are. Lord, am I in sin? Am I so bad that you no longer could even look towards me to address the needs of my heart? You see, we, we go back and forth at times wondering if it's God. And we blame sovereignty. We blame many things along the way. Or sometimes we even blame ourselves. Because we don't know quite how to handle this process of prayers Unanswered. And so, to that end, I want us to go one chapter ahead of where we went last week. Last week we were in Luke chapter 17 and we talked about the idea of thanksgiving in the realm of faith, how those two things are actually very closely tied together. And we found that in the account of the ten lepers and the one that returned following his salvation. Today we're going to look in Luke chapter 18 at a parable. Now, Jesus loved giving parables. And you guys know that I'm a fan of Jesus. I'm a fan of Jesus because he's a great rhetorician. What's the word? Rhetorician? He's a great speaker. He's a boss. He knows what he's talking about. He knows what he's doing. Jesus would often employ parables and stories, these things that weren't true stories, but he would bring them up as like metaphors so that he can prove a point to his people. And he'd always do it so strategically. But when we get to Luke chapter 18, it's very interesting because a lot of times when Jesus would give his parables, he would often disguise the point of the parable. And when his disciples would ask, well, Jesus, why don't you just tell us the point? Jesus said, hearing some people don't hear, seeing some people don't see. It's kind of like the modern day translation of saying, if you know, you know. Jesus would say that, right? But what we find interesting about Luke chapter 18, verses 1 through 8, is that Jesus, from the very get-go, tells us the point of the parable that he's about to tell. Now, there's something that we learn in communication, and that's this. A great communicator doesn't show all of his cards until the end. Because the element of tension is very important. You want to keep people engaged. You want to make people wonder with you as you take them through the process of the truth that you're trying to communicate. But let me tell you, although Jesus gives away the intent and the heart of the parable from the get-go, it doesn't mean that there isn't much more to discover in the tension that we see with the story that's at hand. So again, if you have your Bibles with you, I want you to turn back to Luke chapter 18. I don't want to just read verse 1 for us again. This is what it says. And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. So get ready. Jesus is trying to meet us at a place where in the midst of our unanswered prayers, in the midst of things that aren't panning out the way that we wish God would pan those things out, Luke tells us that Jesus is about to tell us a parable To do two things. It's flipped, right? You always get the application at the end, but Dr. Luke gives it from the get-go. To always pray and don't lose heart. And so we continue on in verse 2. That's what it says. He, that is Jesus, said, In a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, Give me justice against my adversary. This story, friends, Contains only two main characters. You have the basic protagonist and you have the basic antagonist. The protagonist is a widow. Now, a widow in the first century on the social ladder was someone who probably had the least amount of rights. They were the most oppressed. They were the most outcast. They were the most powerless, innocent, oppressed, and helpless people in society. Jesus says there was a widow. We don't know exactly what her situation was, but something in the process removed justice so that she would seek out this judge so that she could have justice returned. She's wanting to make right what's been wrong. And yet, this judge, when we look at how he is described here again, verse 2, says, there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. Meaning this, The judge, or a judge in the first century, often was on the top of the social rung of society. He could call a lot of shots. He had a lot of rights. And in fact, even certain rights that he didn't have, he could bend certain rules to make what's not right his right. He had a lot of power. He had a lot of strength. And yet, he has absolutely no character. He doesn't respect God. Oh, okay, you know, there's a lot of nice atheists. People who don't like God, they don't want to be a part of religion or anything. No, no, no. But he is a judge who neither fears God nor respects man. Which is ironic because, in a sense, the role of a judge is to uphold morality for the sake of people. And this judge has neither quality. So what is Jesus trying to do? Why does Jesus present these two characters in this story? He's trying to create tension that the people and the audience would understand socially. You have a widow who has no rights. You have a judge who has every right, and yet this judge is not a good judge. The only thing this woman is armed with in her quest to receive justice is persistence. All she could do is keep going to this judge's house. She found his address. She keeps knocking at his door, says, Judge, I know you're there. It's my 487th day, and I'm still coming to you. I'm still knocking on your door because, Judge, justice has not been served. What's been wrong has yet to be made right, and you haven't answered me yet. So I'm still coming to your doorsteps. And this judge's response to date, she's the least of his worries. He could care less. Because as a judge, he already has everything he needs. He's got the status. He's got the power. just doesn't have the gall yet to exercise that in the right ways. And in fact, when I think about this parable as well, I wonder if some of Jesus' audience would have understood the sort of courage this woman would have had to have in order to even approach this judge's Home in the first place. I imagine being a widow that you lose so much of your rights because so much of your rights and your livelihood was tied to your husband. When you lose all that, you're probably relegated to a different part of town. And to even get to the judge's house, you would have to traverse. You'd have to go across that same journey, perhaps for even miles, to get to the other side of town and to approach this judge's house as all the townspeople have labeled you. Man, when is she going to quit? When is she going to quit? When we pray. When you show up to small group, you're sharing with your friends. They go, how you been doing? Good. But I'm still praying for my dad. Oh, you're still praying for your dad. Haven't you given up yet? Maybe, maybe it's it's God's sovereign will to to withhold and, and maybe he's trying to just teach you something. And we go, yeah, maybe, maybe that could be true, because all things are possible in the realm of God's sovereignty. We don't know what he's teaching or doing in the moments that we have when prayer goes unanswered, because God's ways are so much higher than ours. And yet we walk away knowing that there's something missing. It's not to say that we're absolutely looking for the fruit of our prayers to be that prayer, to be answered in the way that we want. But all we're asking for is our Father to just give us an answer, to give us something. But yet often in our quest to continue to pray, to be persistent, to be courageous in that effort, we lose heart. Sometimes we lose heart because we're scared to even face people and say, I'm still praying. Because of the shame that comes in facing people and saying, I don't know why God has yet to answer my call. Continues on in verse 4. For a while, he refused. But afterward, he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice. So that, why? She will not beat me down by her continual coming. Now, when we look at verses 4 and 5, the judge's response is quite logical. In fact, he wouldn't have had to wait all these days to meet this woman's request. He's a tough judge. But after however many days, perhaps even years, that have passed by, this judge finally says to himself, I don't respect God, I don't fear God, I don't even respect man, but because out of pure annoyance. Because I can't handle this woman anymore. She keeps coming to me. She doesn't know how to quit. So I quit. I give up. I will give this woman what she wants, so that I will not be beat down by her continual coming. This judge, who is supposed to be a figure of justice and righteousness, who is quite unjudge-like, finds the most unjudge-like reason to give this woman the justice he should have set out to offer in the first place. Jesus is painting an irony here. Jesus is saying something to the effect that even if a judge who's not in the right place, who has no desire to uphold morality, will still end up on the side of this woman, as unrighteous as the means may be. How much more your Father in heaven? Verse 6. And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to His elect who cry to Him day and night? Will He delay long over them? I tell you, He will give justice to them speedily. If this judge, friends, who fears nothing, if you don't fear God, there's not much that you can fear on earth. If you don't have the sense of holy awe coming down to guide your sense of morality, direction, And your compass, not that the gospel is fixed in morality only, but yet gospel-hearted, gospel-minded people have a tendency to look towards the morals that Christ had set out towards us. Things like justice, righteousness, and so forth. But this judge, who is nothing like that, would answer this woman's prayer. Jesus says, by act of comparison, how much more your father who hears intently, moment by moment, second by second, even in the moments when you don't talk. I love what Paul says in Romans chapter 8. Sometimes we don't even have words to express to God because we're so inundated. We're so beat down by our seasons and our moments. So what does he say? The Spirit supplies us with groanings too deep for words. You ever pray because you're so hurt? You pray because you're so cast down and beat down by situations and circumstances that all you can bring in front of God is just a... Oh. Prayer is not always cute. Pastor Billy always shows up right in between the last song and the offering time, right? It's like, it's like it almost feels scripted, right, every Sunday. Yeah. I do a holy bow as I make my way to the front, right? And then I look up, right? Church, let's pray. I sense that God is leading us. And it's like, wow, does he pray like that all the time? Friends, I I want to assure you, I don't pray like that at home all the time, right? Thee, thou God art in heaven, howest thou doest. Prayer, my friends, is not pretty. Because if prayer is God's means for His people to communicate, I mean, for sure, there are moments when we express thanksgiving. (laughs) Lord, thank you. You are so wonderful, awesome in the way that you bless us. And boy, does God bless us abundantly. We've got to learn to count our blessings sometimes. Because, man, in the midst of a lot of things that are going on, there are still a lot of things that are going on, if you know what I mean. Traces of God's grace. But let me tell you, there are moments when in your times of need and prayer, All you can do is get down on your knees and bring in front of God all this woman could bring. Her persistence. Her longing for justice. This character has absolutely nothing that she could leverage socially. Even morally. Widows back then. Heck, widows even today. It's not easy for them to find their footing in society. She has absolutely nothing to offer this judge. She has absolutely no back, right? That's what we call it in Korea, right? Back. She has no support. She can't call someone and be like, yo, yo, come on. You could pull some strings, right? You could help me out. You could do something about this. She has nothing. And yet, the great reversal that takes place is this woman who has nothing except her persistence can change even this calloused judge's heart. She could leverage out of her righteousness, his unrighteousness, that justice would be served. And so Jesus says, will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? Will God just sit back and act like he doesn't have a concern or a care about what is happening intimately in the lives of those whom he loves, his children, his sons? his daughters will he just sit back absolutely not i tell you he will give justice to them speedily i admire this widow's courage i admire that how often do we do we quit in prayer now, again, I'm not saying I don't understand that. I get it. It's hard. You know, sometimes, sometimes it's, it's almost easier to share with people your concerns and your requests, right? Have you ever been in small group? Have you ever been talking to a friend? You go, someone's explaining, man, I got all these needs. And then you go, well, well I, don't, I, don't, I hate to be the holy, holy person, right? I hate to just ask the obvious, but man, have you prayed about that? Uh, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know if I should even bring that to God because, you know, I've tried it. You know, it's an incredibly vulnerable thing to bring your requests in front of God. Because we recognize that there's no one who's more sovereign, who's more powerful, who's as high, mighty, and great as He is. To be put in a place where, when I make my requests known to Him, to no avail we're left to wonder what does that mean god am i unlistenable god have you turned your face from me am i no longer worthy worthy to be called your son your daughter has my sins taken me that far and that deep jesus says We'll have nothing of that sort of talk. That is not who your father is. Now, I do need to make a qualification. This doesn't mean that everything we ask for will come out the way that we ask for it. And I love how one pastor puts it. You know, that when I was in college and, and I was trying to understand this idea of faith, Christianity. You know, I'd grown up in the church, but I never made it my own until I got into, into college. And one of the pastors that I would often listen to is Pastor Tim Keller. Now, Pastor Tim Keller is like super smart. A lot of times he talks about a lot of things and I'm like, wow, you're so cultured. And and I don't know, right? (laughs) Smart guy. But I will always remember this one sermon. I don't even remember what text he preached out of, where it came from, but I'll never remember his take-home message. He said, when you ask God for something, he will always give you better than you deserve. He will always give you More than you asked for. I thought about that and I said, that's not true. That's not true. Because, God, I asked for a car before and I got a used one. (laughs) God, I asked for more riches and you took them away. Is it not true, friends, that our God, though He is a God who in Himself is a prospering God, doesn't always hand off prosperity in the way that you and I think of it. But here's what I realized is the deep insight that Pastor Tim was trying to share. In all circumstances, when God's people come to him in prayer... And they ask for something. And even if we don't get that very thing we ask for, we indeed are always getting more than we ask and better than we deserve. Because at the end of our prayer, we are always meeting not something, but we are meeting someone. And that someone who stands on the other side is far greater than any gift, anything that can be contained in our hands on this earth. How do I know this? Why is it that people who have everything live like they have nothing? Why is it that people who have every rich thing in the world that they could buy with their money, wealth, power, and status, and yet they act like they have nothing in their endless conquest and pursuit of having everything? talked about this a few weeks ago too. In the history of Israel in the Old Testament, their best moments were the moments when they came to realization. Man, we got all this quail. We got all this manna in the desert. We got everything we asked for. And what had happened? They took it and they ran off. God was still trying to teach them dependence in the desert. He said, look, I'm going to send manna. Okay. And man, I don't know what manna is. First thing, I'm, first, Maybe one of the first things I'll ask God when I get to heaven. God, I've been dying to try some of that manna. Okay, Heaven, heaven's candy. I don't know, right? This is supposed to be great, right? What happened? God was like, all right, everyone, listen up. Gather and collect manna as much as you can, whatever you can eat on each day. But just know that whatever you gather, like what's left over and what you don't eat, it's going to spoil by the next day. Just on the sixth day, gather enough so that you have enough on the seventh so that you don't have to work for it, but you can rest as you enjoy what I've provided for you. Why did God do that? So know that what he gives is enough, not just because what he gives is enough, but because he himself is enough. That's something that I think we have to be honest about. Lord, in seasons where I have longings, And friends, these longings are real. What does that longing say about the current condition of my heart? If I'm honest, am I seeking the thing or am I seeking the one? Continue on. The end of the passage. Jesus ends quite cryptically. You would think Jesus would just end on verse 8a, right? It's a clean break, right? Just continue on with the rest of the gospel. But he lands on a cliffhanger, and there's no next episode. <laughs> he ends by saying, Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, when I come back onto this earth as a rightful ruler and king, will he find faith on earth? Will he find faith? On earth. See, that last question is laying it all out in front of us. Will we persistently pray as a sign of our faith in Him, or will we not give up so easily in asking as that sign of our faith? Jesus is looking for us to partner with Him, He's looking for us to depend on Him, He's looking for His people. To be in a position to come as children—that's hard. The older we get, feel like we're smarter, right? We can outsmart God. We can leverage our degrees, right? I mean, it's hard in Korea too, because everything's about your spec, right? Keep talking about this, right? Spec. It's Peggy right? What university did you come out of? What do your parents do? How many masters do you have? What kind of accolades do you have? Show me your value on paper. Not by your personhood, right? And so it's difficult to be in a society where you're measured by those things. In our attempt to come in front of a God who says, you don't need to leverage all that. You just come to me as you are. You don't have to try to control me. You don't have to try to shape my thoughts of you. If you knew every thought that I had of you, your brain would explode. Your heart wouldn't be able to contain it. The love that I have for you. I want to go back to addressing some of the folks here who, who maybe have quit praying. Because you feel like perhaps the content of what you're praying for is too much to ask God. Maybe it's beyond what God wants to do for you right it's this whole idea of we got to pray in god's will right but let's be real i don't always know what's god's will i know mine <laughs> i don't know what god wants in every waking moment i'm like i think you want justice god you want world peace but i don't know the way things are going it doesn't look like world peace is going to happen Maybe we just have to wait until you come back or depending on your theological, eschatological view, you're like, man, things are getting better. Oh, no, things are getting worse. You're not sure. I don't know, God. What is your will right now? But I know mine. And friends, let me tell you something. Sometimes we're so stuck in asking ourselves, asking God, Lord, I'm not going to ask until I'm sure what I'm asking for is what you want me to ask for. That's tiring. I'm going to use another Jed analogy. You know, if my son came to me and goes, "Father, what is your will?" <laughs> Why do you ask, son? Whoa, 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 what do you What do you What do you mean by that? Oh, no, no. I want to know what you want so that when I know what you want, I know what to ask for because what you want is is now what I'm going to ask for and what I want. Now, in one sense, that's really cool in a faith perspective, right? Because it's like, oh, there's a bridging of hearts and like, yeah, we want what the father wants. But listen, in this parable, the issue that Jesus is trying to raise is again, what? Always pray. And as you are always praying, don't lose heart. That idea of don't lose heart presupposes, Jesus is assuming correctly, he is presupposing rightly that you and I will face discouragement by unanswered prayer along the way. Meaning, there are going to be things that you and I ask for that maybe God is not answering in the moment. We don't even know if it's what God wants for us in the moment. And yet, Jesus says, do not lose heart. I love that expression. Jesus is saying, sometimes when you pray, you leave your heart behind. You make it mechanical. Lord, here I am. I'm just saying it to just say it again so that you don't forget as though you are the God who forgets. No, but Jesus is saying, it's okay. It's okay to come in front of God. And just as you were so desperate on day one, doesn't mean that on day 500 that God somehow forgot. Jesus says, don't lose heart because it's not just your issue, but what's important is the person you bring your issue in front of. Yeah. As a dad, I want Jed to want what I want. I mean, that's, like, that's, that's ideal, right? Listen to your father, right? Do as I say, do what I want. But you know, let me tell you something. Even when I know I will say no to my son, I love it when he comes to me. I love it. I love it. Sometimes when we're at home, it's late at night. I might go out somewhere real quick or Pastor Daisy might go out real quick to the Pionijam, right? We have a CU right in front of our house, right? And I love it, right? You can have everything there. He drinks and like sometimes we get like cup ramen, you know, have weird times of the day. But every time someone leaves, Jed always looks at the other parent and goes, oh, like take me out right now too. Now, sometimes parents just get annoyed and go, oh, no. No, we're not going out right now, right? But sometimes he does that to me, and I go, oh, I love this. Because he knows I have the means to be able to provide that. Because every time my son comes to me, every time we go in front of our Heavenly Father, we may not know whether he will answer. And friends, doesn't God correct us anyway? Sometimes you bring ridiculous requests. I don't think God is insecure where he's like, oh my gosh, angels. Oh, dang it. He asked for that. Billy asked for that. What are we going to do? I think God's far more secure than that. Amen. I think God still loves the fact that we just come to him because it's preserving the integrity of our relationship with him. He is still father and we are still his children. I get challenged. Remember one of my old campus ministry pastors. We were, we were driving around, right, and you know he had to look for parking on the on like uh, one of the one of the streets uh, near UCLA. And he goes, oh, "Billy, come on, let's pray. Let's pray for parking right now." And I'm like, "What? It's the most dumb thing to pray about, right? Just wait for it in the natural, <laughs> right? Right?" And this guy, he's not even—he wasn't even like a Holy Spirit guy, right? He's not—he's not charismatic by any means, but he's like, "Let's pray for parking." i was so challenged by that he's like yeah billy sometimes i pray and god gives me the front spot and i go really i remember he was sharing he does it because it helps him be in the practice of remembering who he is in front of god so challenged by that friends god already knows We spend so much time trying to fix ourselves before we even enter into the place of prayer when we forget that the place of prayer is not where we leave our mess behind. But Jesus says, no, it's where you bring your mess with you. And you hand it off to me. Even when you bring requests in front of God, You know, let's be real. Some of you guys might have an objection and you're saying, well, what about what about like situations where people ask for deliverance and they don't get it? That's real, right? It happens. One of the passages that I think back to in the Old Testament comes from the narrative portion in the book of Daniel. There are three characters. Daniel's homeboys, right? Say Daniel and his posse. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Dude, those dudes are crazy, right? They, they, they perfectly, in as righteous of a manner as they possibly could, they, they upheld everything that Nebuchadnezzar asked them to do in order to just be good, upstanding citizens in their exile. But one thing they couldn't do was bow down. They said, that we can't do. Well, we can't do that because you're not our king. Like, you're not like our king, king. Like, you're like our earthly, maybe right now, king. But like, we got king, king. (laughs) He said to the fire. Now, if I'm in that situation, (laughs) I don't know what God's will is. But let me tell you, I'm going to be like, Lord, here's my will. Save me now. (laughs) Deliver me. Take me out of this place remove me from these circumstances, God, because I know you love me, right? And, but, it, but sometimes you might think, right, that, that someone's watching and if they die, people are like, oh my gosh, I guess God doesn't love them. <laughs> well, I guess God doesn't want to save them. I guess God just didn't care about His people. But that is not the theology that these three men have about who their God is. It's what I call next level assurance. They get thrown into the right before they're about to get thrown into the fire. Right. They're like any last words and they say, absolutely. This is the craziest oxymoron that you might find all throughout scripture. Our God will deliver and save us. But even if he doesn't, he is still God. It's amazing. Our God will save and deliver us. But even if he doesn't, let me tell you, he's still God. That's not like uncertainty prayer. It's, it's crazy. These three men had absolute assurance that in that moment in time, they understood the will of God. They said, he is going to save us. But let us tell you right now, even if he didn't, you're going up against the wrong God, folks. He is still Who he says he is. When I think about that story in the context of the persistent widow and the idea of not losing heart. Friends, I believe the thing that attacks our heart most in this process is our understanding of who our father is. That's why I think God is so wise. First Corinthians tells us, right, that God won't give you a situation that's too much for you. But He always gives you a way out of that temptation. Sometimes that temptation is even our misunderstanding, our misknowledge of who God the Father is. I believe God sends relief at different moments and points in time. I think about my history. I think about when we were so unsure about the presence and the reality of God as we were leading up to having Jed. And God provided. I think about when I think back to my history of growing up without a dad. And yet, in the process, God has provided abundantly as he sent many father figures into my life. I asked for one dad, and God gave me more. Friends, I'm not saying that every situation always works itself out well. But I think the point of what Jesus is trying to say Is that in the end, the father is still your father. Go in front of him. If there's nothing you remember from my message today, you can remember this. You go home today. You dig up out of your closet that one or two things, those things that you gave up on. And you're scared to bring it in front of God again because it's vulnerable. It hurts to ask again and again. And yet, God says, come on, man. Come on, son. Come on, daughter, I could take it. Bring it to me again. Bring it to me again. And I may not give it back to you in the way that you imagine or ask. But because I'm that sort of father, you just wait until it comes back. Maybe in my lifetime, maybe not. Maybe some of the things that we're praying for can't be contained in my generation. It may need to work itself out in the next. I don't know. My job isn't to fulfill those things. My job is to simply present before my father who loves me. I remember back when my parents got divorced in college and and I, I shared this. You know, it was a very tough time because it not only brought strain in the household, it brought strain financially, brought strain socially. My mom, for a season, couldn't go back to the church that she attended because that's the church that she went with my father. And I understand the the heartache of single parents. And I remember the heartache that my mother experienced because she said, I said, Mom, why can't you go back to home church? And she said, because people are talking. People are talking. It's not safe. So there was a season where... Where she couldn't go out to church and, and she was looking for a church and these things. But I remember where, where she would start going out to morning prayer. I remember I was at home during the summer on break. And she would keep going to morning prayer to the church that was right across the street from us. It wasn't the one that we had attended. But she would go every morning. I'd hear the door open at 6. I'd hear the door open again at 7.30. And she'd come back every single day. And I got angry. why why god would you make this woman who has lost just about everything keep seeking you when you already signed her death sentence she keeps going thinking you're gonna give her something but god you're gonna leave her hanging just like dad did so I remember one morning, she, came, she comes back from morning prayer. And I was so mad that I stayed up after she left. Because I was waiting for her to get home because I could confront her then. She comes back. She'd often have tissues in her hands. Never dry-eyed. She's just pouring out in front of God. You know, my mom, my mom didn't have an education beyond elementary school because she was a product of the Korean War. My mom was born in '45. The Korean War broke out in 50. She just had to learn different trades and practices to get through in life. She had nothing to leverage. All she could do was go to morning prayer at 6 in the morning across the street, hoping that something or someone or some deliverance or some help would come as she was living under the same roof as her son, who was starting to lose faith. So I confronted her. Ummah, why do you keep going? What are you going to get out of it? What is God going to do for us now? Look at the pain that He's already brought in, and you keep going out expecting Him to give us something better. Mom, just accept the things as they are. And I remember my mom looking at me and saying, But Billy. What else can I do right now? Where else could I go? Where else could could we ask for help to come along this way? I can only go in front of our Father in Heaven and see what He might be able to do for us. I didn't leave that conversation convinced that I should pray. It was a a weird time for me. I was growing in my faith, and yet I still had a lot of questions about who this father, who this God really was. But my mom left one of the most important lessons for me in my life. The answer to her prayer didn't come in any of the ways that we had expected. We were praying at the time that we'd be able to keep our house. Couldn't keep it. We had to sell it. One of the downers that we faced was that during that time, we ended up having to just live with different people. First, it was my uncle. We lost our home, and we had to go into somebody else's. But in that process as well, my mom had a golf friend, right? My mom was still golfing, right? he was like, we have no home, but I must golf (laughs) to keep my sanity, (laughs) right? One of our golf friends in her own time of praying and being convicted, said, I feel like God is saying for you guys to come to our house. Ginormous house. It's the biggest house that I ever lived in. <laughs> and as I would going in, and I remember this lady sat me down, right, because my mom was, like, sleeping, and she was like, I'll make food for you. Every, t- every Friday, you come back home from UCLA, I'll make you dinner if you want it. And I remember she was saying, I want you to feel like this is your home. I want you to think I would give to you what your mom would give to you as well. Here's your room. Here's your bathroom. Here are all these things. Now look, I'm not saying that the result of prayer was the house. It was, it was this, this, this thing. But I remember as these acts of divine kindness started coming our way, I remember thinking to myself, wow, God, It's not what I had asked for. Still wanted that old place. I still wanted the laundry list of things that I brought before you. But Lord, you know what? You gave better. I just had lunch with that lady because she was visiting Korea a couple months ago. I remember sitting across from her crying. Not just thankful for what she herself had provided, but thankful to God. proved his love again and i know he will again and again and again in all of our lives there is power in persistent continuous prayer not because of what you pray prayer is not magic where you string the right words together with the right amount of eloquence and somehow god goes now i'm listening prayer is not powerful because of what you say but because of who you say it to And prayer often finds its greatest strength not when you feel like you have everything you need, but often in moments when you lose everything you have so that you are directed to the only one that you need. You feel in desperate, church? You feel like you're in your last hour? Let me tell you something. This is prime time to pray. This is prime time to lay down all of your plans in front of God. Don't, don't, t- don't scrap them. Say, Lord, here it is, God. Here's my will. Here's what's on my heart. Here's what I've been thinking. Here's what I've been dreaming. Here's what I've been wanting. But Lord, what I want more is you to answer my call. That is what is at stake. Our relationship with him. The church is often filled with many people who are losing faith, who are losing trust. They show up and they just bring the skeleton or the shell of themselves, but they've left their hearts behind. So Jesus says, don't lose heart. Don't lose heart. Don't lose heart. Keep praying. Keep asking. Because even if I don't give to you the thing you asked for, the way that you are asking for, it, surely I will still give you my Self. I wonder, you know, a, a non-believer will hear this and say, you're stupid, pastor. You're stupid that you believe that there's somewhere up, someone up there who actually listens and hears. And I say, that is what my faith is predicated on that God would hear the cries of his people enough that he would send his one and only son to give us an answer and a substitute better than we could have ever dreamed, dared, or asked. And that if God would even give to us his son as an answer to our deepest cry, it is not too much for him to continue to listen to the cries of the broken. I just want to invite Sam back up real quick.